Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 8th, 2021. Praise Christ, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to have a conversation with a good friend, Gregory Kay, which we actually first discussed having at least three years ago, before we shared the common experience of Hurricane Michael. Coming from West Virginia, Greg moved down to Panama City Beach, where we had gotten to know him personally only a short time before that hurricane had disrupted both of our lives. However, we probably knew him from social media and from our common membership in the League of the South for at least a year or two before we actually met in person. Greg is a longtime Southern Nationalist. He has been involved with the League of the South as well as with other Nationalist causes, such as the Southern National Congress. And he has also written a series of novels. Greg is a professional writer. He's written a series of novels which portray our common struggle through fictional but realistic characters who prevail through incredible but plausible circumstances. The books are not really new, as the series was published between 2004 and 2011, but they are as fresh as new to anyone who has not yet read any of them. That much I know, because I myself just read most of the first book in the series over the last 24 hours. The only archaic technology that stood out was the mention of cameras which still use tape, which I thought was quaint. The character development in the first book is quite good, and the reader can actually become fond of them, or fond of despising them quite easily. Not all of the goats in the story have Jewish names, surnames, but a sufficient number of them do. The main protagonists are unwitting normies, as we would call them, who are forced into flight and then into fight by the wicked deeds of their own superiors in government and the media, and who are both rescued and recruited by men who waited decades for the opportunity with which the story presents them. All of this compels us to ask Greg about the reasons for conceiving and writing the series, but first we would want to know more about his own real-life experiences as a longtime Southern Nationalist, which is just as important a reason why we are pleased to have him here with us this evening. Hello, Greg. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let me just adjust your volume upward a little bit. I'm sure you would love to tell us how you got into Southern Nationalism or, or, or how Southern Nationalism got into you, perhaps. Okay. Uh, the best I can tell you is that uh, Southern Nationalism, I was introduced to it in kind of a uh, the local library came up with a book called The South Was Right. Um, I read it, ended up, was convinced by it, ended up joining the league. Well, I was rather, I guess you would call it a, I believe the propaganda of the book and didn't move beyond it. And I was sort of one of the, one of the rainbow crowd, 
which was normal then and which most of the people in the league were at the time. And I shifted my beliefs to fit the facts rather than the other way around. That's the best way I can describe it. Well, I could understand that. And the League of the South was more of a civic nationalist organization at that time. It was, yes. So, so how did you come to an awakening of, of differences between the races? That might be interesting cancer. to hear. Cancer. <laughs> I'm a two-time cancer survivor. And um, there's nothing like the first time I got it, I had just been disabled. Uh, they put it down to chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome, which I have, but I also had cancer inside me, which they somehow missed. Well, once they discovered it, uh, there's nothing like thinking you're going to die a slow, horrible, and painful death to clear the mind like nothing else. <laughs> I changed my views, reevaluated re my views, I should say, on a lot of things, including race, politics, religion, uh, the whole bit. So you were probably ahead of the curve on the League of the South at that time, I'm sure, where they probably um, remained a civic oh, yeah. national. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's all right. No, yeah, I, I was definitely um, ahead of the curve, and a few of them let me know it. <laughs> that that some of that difference, and and I hope to speak about this a little later on. Some of those differences come out in your book, in in the Third Revolution, and and it's still true to this day that Southern nationalist groups and and nationalist groups in general are very divided on the issue of race. And, and fall all over the spectrum, so to speak. Is there anything they're not divided on, Bill? <laughs> well, that's true, too. It's sad, <laughs> but that's also true on race, on tactics, on optics, which... On, on politics, on you know, political economic philosophies, on history, you name it. So you were in these Southern Nationalist Conference as well. So you were in different uh, i was in i was in the southern party oh the southern party i'm sorry yeah mm -hmm. okay so i stand corrected that's all right that's fine I, I thought that the um maybe i thought that was the same as the southern nationalist congress no the uh, uh that's a different thing um the southern party was originally a child of the league and then it and the league went their separate ways okay so is the Southern Party still a civic nationalist group? It hasn't existed in a meaningful form for probably, I don't know, 18, 19 years, something along those lines. So it died I mean, a civic nationalist group. It's not a group at all right now. Right. Okay, that's interesting. This This book... I was very pleased at the book in a lot of ways. I, I mean, of course, I, I read the reviews on Amazon on a book, but I had to re read the book for myself. Of course, any book has its critics. I thought that some of the criticisms were unfair. I have a synopsis, and, and perhaps you could correct me on this. Sure. I, I mean, I, I read it kind of quickly late last night and, and this morning. Yeah. <laughs> but... 
the backdrop of the book is that an ominous geopolitical situation, I won't get into details, creates ordered shortages followed by domestic unrest, dire economic straits, and degenerating social conditions, which in turn lead to inevitable martial law and domestic tyranny. Northern cities began exploiting domestic politics in order to siphon off the resources and produce of the South, just as they had before what you yourself would call the Second Revolution in 1861. So it's just a, a repeat of the patterns of history, which, I mean, we have every right to, to expect if we ever studied history. Uh that's fair. That's a pretty fair assessment. L later in the book, you explain that same thing in the mouth of one of your characters. I don't remember if it was Sam or not, but I think so. At the same time, as unrest grows in the South, the federal government begins to ban Confederate symbols, flags, and monuments. And, and we've seen that play out where they've done it through legislation instead of outright bans on, under states of emergency. But the effect is still the same. All of this is mere background, however, at least in this first of a four-part series, and it creates a situation which really only lights the fuse of an already loaded cannon. So you depicted this demonstration in South Carolina, yeah. Columbia, South Carolina, or Columbus, yeah. Columbia, Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia, yeah. I always get it confused with Columbus, Georgia, I'm sorry. And, and a demonstration right. protesting the removal of a Confederate flag in South Carolina turns violent as white mm -hmm. Southerners protesting the removal of a flag are confronted by black counter-demonstrators. Now, I don't know how much of that went on before 2004, but it seemed pretty prescient to me coming into Southern nationalism a little later in time. Well, we um, now we had the biggest, as far as I know, single Southern Nationalist demonstration in Colombia before this happened in an effort to keep the flag on the dome back when it was on the Capitol Dome. Okay. And um, we put 6,000 people on the street. There were no incidents, but... You know, so I looked at it, you know, when I started the book as what would have happened if there were. And the deal was made, though, they'd take it down off the dome and put it behind the monument. Well, at that point, I knew it was eventually going to come down. Excuse me a second. I've got a cough here. <coughs> okay, I'm back. Um, I knew they would take it down off the monument at some point. And so I centered the book around that. I, I need to tell you, there's a kind of a funny story about how this series came about. Uh, a fellow I knew online sent me the draft of uh, uh, the first part of a book he was working on, on a similar subject that was settled around, centered around jo Stone Mountain, Georgia. So I, he wanted me to review it for him. And I looked at it. And to be honest, I mean, it, it was not good. Okay, it was not particularly well written. It was very propagandic. Like, obviously, I mean, I, you know, obviously I write propaganda too, but I try to be subtle with it. But the, one of the main things is he had some things in there, te technically, that were not correct. 
I ran some of his military stuff by a friend of mine who became one of my technical advisors. Um, he started off in the Army in armor and ended up in Special Forces. Okay, so he informed me, no, this isn't right. So I informed this guy that, no, this is technically incorrect. I didn't want to shoot him down bad or anything. Well, he never spoke to me again. <clears throat> and I was griping about, I wish somebody would write a book. I wish somebody would write a book. And uh, my wife said, well, and at that time I was disabled. My wife said, if it bothers you so bad, write your own book. Maybe it'd be good to keep your mind sharp. Well, she probably regretted that in the long run, since that series consumed about 10 years of my life. I see that. But uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's the story behind I mean, the, the series is close to, or I think maybe somewhat over 2,000 pages long in the four books. Yes, I'm sure. The first, page, the first book is over 400 pages, I believe. Yeah, yeah. the The next couple are around about that size, and the last one's over seven hundred. Maybe you should have had a last and two. <laughs> well, could have, but I was kind of getting tired at that point. I had other writing projects to do, and I felt kind of bad for what I. I mean, I put my characters through hell in these books, and it's kind of like, in a way, it's a little bit like having children. After a while, you know, they just need a break. So, um, but I had, the uh, thing is, the funny part is it started off to be one book. It just got out of hand. I can imagine that. I've experienced things like that on a smaller scale, mm. running a podcast that turns out to be three podcasts or thereabouts. Oh, yeah. That the, I thought the character development was great. You actually becoming engrossed and interested in the characters. I, I think that part was very good. I, I, I have some comments on that perhaps a little later. I, I would like to get on with this synopsis that, that I assembled just to give you points to speak about, if, if you don't mind. Sure. That 6,000-person demonstration in Charlottesville was in 2004? Or no, that would have been around probably... I'm wanting to say about sometime around 2000, I believe. I don't 2000, know the exact right. year, but it was around that area. Yeah, that makes more sense. It would be a couple of years. 2000 or maybe even the late 90s. Right, because the book was published in 2004. Maybe that's what I have on my yeah. mind. That, well, that's incredible. It four years to write the book, the first one. The others I could do about one a year. Four years to write the first book. Wow. Okay. First novel I ever wrote. So you know. I... Okay, that that explains <clears throat> it. But I I thought it was well done. I mean, I did Thank see you. a typo in it, but that's okay. It was probably a spell check that did that. If if you knew what I went through to edit that thing, um, I sent it through. Now, I mean, I sent it through my technical advisors first. I had a variety of people, including the uh, special forces guy I talked about earlier. I had a guy that was been a former Navy SEAL. I had cops. I had firemen, EMTs, the whole bit. I ran it through them for technical correction. And if they happened to notice any typos, they were supposed to let me know. Well, we hired a lady who was a retired proofreader from Doubleday. And uh, she proofread the thing for me. Well, after she got done, I went through it on a final reading and found a whole bunch of typos she had missed. So, it never um, ends, Greg. You know, it's just, it is what it is. You know? 
I, I have a New Testament translation with three revisions so far, and I still find typos in it. I still do. You will. Or, or yeah, missing verse will. numbers or things like that. It, it, well, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first Bibles translated into English had the it, it had a misquote in the Ten Commandments, and it said, "Thou shalt commit adultery." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some humanist did that. Oops, <laughs> that's funny. It, it's I'm sure that that was corrected on the fly by a lot of church pastors. Oh yeah. Well, this this demonstration that you portray here. Mm-hmm actually does seem to be ahead of its time. And, and I thought it was really ironic and, and pretty funny that the violence broke out appropriately by what was the last and probably even the very first act of defiant heroism on the part of an aging lawyer who is also the head of one of the soft-line Southern nationalist groups portrayed in the book. Yep. So I, I thought that, that was really interesting and and during the well, melee you, at when least you get older when you get old you're everything hurts and you're mad at the world anyway so you have less to lose well well here's a guy that you okay. would portray as a lawyer who, who um headed this soft line group that was trying to preserve monuments and flags through the court system yeah and he kicks off all the violence at this demonstration. So he did more in a rash manner. He accomplished more than he ever accomplished in a courtroom as a lawyer. Absolutely. So that's a good use of irony there. I thought that was interesting. During the melee, at least most of the cops seemed to be neutral. But when one, when that old white man attacked the politicians who were there to remove a flag Mm -hmm. with his cane, Black counter-protesters rushed through a hole in the lines, assisted by one black cop, who then started randomly shooting and killing white demonstrators. And many of the other cops panicked, thinking that they were being shot at by the white demonstrators, so they returned fire on a group of innocent, unarmed civilians. And I'd like to say more about this scene than that, because the media had gone on to immediately demonize the whites as having launched an organized attack with military precision as part of a racist conspiracy, the media covering for the cops, while portraying the black counter-demonstrators as heroes who had come to the aid of the politicians. And of course, none of that was true, but there were open attempts on the part of the government to suppress alternate accounts of the incident from being published. The look story at Ashley ha- Babbitt. I'm sorry. I said, look at Ashley Babbitt. Well, absolutely. Just this year. Absolutely. Yeah. It starts over and over again, and that's what I'm getting to. That this story has all of the expected elements. It has Wiggers, it has Uncle Toms, it has Al Sharpton imitators, it has power hungry federal thugs, Jewish carpetbaggers from New York who are in important positions in the South. And it has a manipulative liberal media, which cooperates with government-produced fake news, which is designed to invert reality. And that script contains several themes that were actually played out in Charlottesville 14 years after your book was published. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. (laughs) (laughs) 
the the the, the prescience was striking because I don't think that you could see all that at one time in in a in a nonfiction work up to that point in time. I, I mean, we did see the inversion of reality at Waco, but it was in totally different circumstances. We saw an inversion of reality at Ruby Ridge, but it was in yeah. totally different circumstances. So here it's all right together. And the only problem was that Charlottesville didn't have the same immediate consequences where this demonstration that you portrayed in this fictional book did. It quickly evolved into what you call the third revolution, which is a, a very apt description of American history. If you really want to consider the, the Confederacy and its formation, it was a sort of revolution against the federal government that became every bit the tyrants that the British were before the American Revolution. Well, it was fought for the same reason. The American Revolution in 1776 was a war of secession. The uh, <clears throat> war between the states was a war of secession. In fact, I believe it was the Supreme Court decades afterwards declared that it was, it was either the Supreme Court or Congress, and I'm thinking the Supreme Court declared it was not, in fact, a civil war. It was a war of secession. It was a revolution of a, of a section, in other words. It's like a, an inversion of reality to call it a civil war. Because yeah. a civil war is technically when two competing groups go to arms fighting in control of the same government. That's a civil yeah. war, and that's yeah. not what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's just... Um, just wait, wait. And the thing is, I'll, I'll tell you something up front, Bill. This book was not written in a conventional manner. Okay, my brain doesn't work that way. I know, ideally, you're supposed to develop your characters, write down your plot, make outlines, and the whole bit. I just sat down and started write, writing on page one. And the, the books wrote themselves. I just, I mean... You know, I just, I let the horse have its head and just kind of tried to keep it from falling off the cliff as it went. Well, well I mean, that's fine. It doesn't have to be conventional yeah. to be good. I thought but it was I mean, pretty good. But I didn't sit down, I didn't sit down and um, plan it out. I had no idea how it was going to end when it started. I'm like, the good guys are going to win somehow. That's all I know about it. <laughs> and <laughs> to, I started me... with that uh, demonstration you were talking about, and I just, it just kind of went from there. And it's... Like, okay, if this happens, the only logical response a character of this nature will have is this. And then I just tracked it down, a logical progression from there. It, it's, yeah, you know, I, I like to think that I'm a pretty good reader. I read a lot of um, arcane old documents all the time and, and yeah. do my best to decipher them. It, it's I didn't see any inconsistencies in any of your character developments. And, and I actually do, I, I actually did experience, as you should experience reading a good novel, becoming like at least somewhat emotionally attached to the characters. 
like oh, yeah. you actually despise some and you love some and you want some to to do good and and to survive right things like that right so so it's oh, it if it keeps the reader emotionally involved it's going to be a good book even if it's not perfect and and i thought you did a great job with that i really did well, thank you throughout this first book I, of course i couldn't read four books in one day we decided yeah. to do this podcast last weekend over a beer down on front beach road <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it's, i i thought that was funny but we had talked about it for several years before we actually yeah. shook hands and decided to do it and here we are so I didn't have much time to prepare, and I told you three years ago that I would read your book, and, and I still hadn't done it, so I made it a point to do today. But admittedly, I did skip a few chapters when yeah. when the truck with Samantha got turned over in a ditch, and she was captured, and throughout yeah. the next several chapters, she was tortured and rescued. And I thought that was a good turn of the story. And in this sort of elevated situation, it's not unrealistic at all for something like that to happen. So I thought that was a good plot, but I skipped ahead until the point where she was already rescued and, and yeah. finished the book. I, I didn't need the chapters on her, her torture and interrogations yeah. and all of that. I didn't think in order to understand the book. Yeah. And I couldn't. I just couldn't do it all in just a few hours. So I understand. I may go back and look at those later if, if I decide, and and when I decide to uh, that I have time to read your second book. Most of the yeah. reading I do is connected to my work, and if it's not work, then I don't have time to read it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that that's the way life is. I, I understand, Bill. I mean, it's uh, in her case, what happened to her is part of the development of her future character along with what happens to everybody in the books, good and bad, during this conflict. Right, and that what, hap that's part you know, of life. Adversity is the forge of God, they say. You know, so. Yes, that's absolutely part of life. And it's, it, it's um, to a man's credit to realize, to realize that, that he faces trials and he endures the trials, and it changes him in, in nuanced ways that makes him a better person. Or it should make him a better person. Yeah, what does? Yeah, you know, it's like the uh, one of the few things I agree with Nietzsche on was what does not kill us makes us stronger, or it in some people it just shatters them. Yeah, you know, so it's it depends on the person. Yes, it does. The the person and the particular trial at the same mm -hmm. time. But I, yeah. I mean, I, I've given the advice since I got out of twelve years in federal prison that mm -hmm. that. And, and I still believe this to this day, and I probably always will, that God judges you by how you face your trials and what you do with them. Mm -hmm. That's not a that's not an outrageous thing to say. <laughs> and I mean, I look at it this way. I used at one time I worked uh, as a helper for a blacksmith, and you can take a a lump of iron ore or a piece of scrap iron. And it is good for absolutely nothing unless you want to make a doorstop out of it. But you take and move that to the fire and to the anvil and put it under the hammer and back and forth between the fire and the anvil and the quench and beat it and pound it and refine it, shape it and grind it, 
harden it and then temper it, and you've got something useful. But once in a while, you'll find a piece of iron that the first time you heat it up or the first time you hit it with, an, with a hammer, it will literally just crumble apart. And so it's either, you know, I, I guess your soul is kind of good, good ore or bad ore. I, I don't know really how to, how to say it. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, we're also judged for whether or not we face trials, for, for whether yeah. or not we stand up for, for the truth or for the law or for what is right. And, and yeah. the law condemns men who refuse to stand up when they see it something does. wrong. Mm -hmm. Leviticus chapter 5, Romans chapter 1. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to take a stand for what is right in our lives. And if we avoid those trials, that, then we, we're not... We have no reward, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, there's an old uh, there's an old proverb that says tolerance is equal to consent. Right, Romans chapter one. But uh, you know, it's just it's the way it is, and sometimes in, instead of asking God why is why is this happening to me. Maybe you ought to ask him, what, what, what are you trying to teach me with this? What am I supposed to learn? Right, I agree. I do agree. Well, well this book describes underground networks of Southern nationalists, some who mm -hmm. seem to have carefully awaited their opportunity, even if they do not act too quickly, until they are forced to act by the circumstances. It portrays the internal philosophical struggles among nationalists, especially over the issue of race. It portrays the infiltration by federal agents into various factions and the lack of trust among sincere nationalists, which are caused by those circumstances. Then, among different types of nationalists, it's noted that there are even further divisions and rivalries which prevent unity, which are related to religion or political sympathies or even more trivial matters. So, aside from the character mm -hmm. development necessary for a novel, it does offer potential nationalists a lot to consider while offering an indictment of the so-called movement in many respects. Not an indictment of the cause, of course. Yeah, and the and two indictment of the movement. Yeah, in a way, it is that. Now, a lot of people believe, oh, I recognize this person. You modeled it off that one or this one. No, <clears throat> everybody in there is modeled off of various types in the movement. And the people are combinations of people in the movement and without, but everybody is modeled off types I run into in the movement. And to be honest, I mean, a lot of the people, I think the biggest problem in the movement is, <clears throat> I believe that then, and I believe it even more now, it's not uh, political philosophy, it's not uh, this or religion, it's not this or that. The biggest problem is an overdeveloped sense of pride and outsized egos. That was a problem when I was heavily involved back at the turn of the 21st century, which sounds really weird to me, but, <laughs> and it's the problem. It's the problem now. I still see it. I mean, it's on, I'm on the mailing list. I talk to the people. I got friends all over, and I see it every day, and it's not just a Southern nationalist movement. It's any nationalist movement, at least the white ones. That's the only ones I follow. 
And, uh, I mean, you see it in every one of them. Just eager, it's everything, everybody wants to be, we got too many chiefs and not enough Indians. I guess the best way to put it. I agree with that. And I've always fretted about that within our own Christian identity faith, or my own, I should say, with you, mm-hmm. Christian identity faith, that everybody who comes to this truth, and we believe it true, they want to lead it. They want to be a leader. Mm-hmm. They think that because they learn the truth about something, that they are automatically qualified to be the leader of it. And I think that's a problem not only in Christian identity, but in in nationalism, even people coming into something like orthodoxy that are just getting started and and learn that, Mm -hmm. they automatically want to lead it. I've seen that in all walks of life. Oh, no question. And it's that way in every part of Christianity, and I assume every religion. And it's, it's just human nature. Everybody wants to be a leader. And nobody wants to follow. And, you know, where Christ said, said the one who wants to lead needs to be the servant of all. Right. I, I agree. And, Absolutely. You need to be and, a follower. Uh, yeah. Most of these people, most of these people, just to be blunt, seem to want to, um, they think they're doing a service to everybody just by allowing them to be in their august presence. And right. that's not, not how it works. Right. Well, I've always, what I'm saying is I've always, like, observed the same phenomenon from my own position. Mm -hmm. And even when I was still in prison, I observed that in their writings and, and people that really weren't qualified to write about certain things had, had their opinions and their opinions were more important than any of the competing opinions. It's a man has to realize what he's good at and stick to that area. I mean, I might be able to argue with somebody over the meaning of a Greek word or phrase or or something like that, but I'm not going to, because I'm an, I I might be good at that. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be good at leading men in a field, in a field operation or, or, at being a public speaker or something like that, just because you're good in one area doesn't, or just because you come to the truth in one area doesn't mean that you know the truth about everything. Absolutely. It's, I understand the ego problems that have always plagued nationalists, identity Christians, and, and even people in other religious sects or or religious systems that that have that they come into it and they imagine that because they awoke to it that they should be in charge of it it's ridiculous it is i mean i can't i can't argue with that at all it it, that that's one of the main that's why the movement both southern nationalism and white nationalism in general of which despite the some of the arguments to the contrary southern nationalism is really a part of is that's why we constantly fail <laughs> because we're not we're fighting okay it's it's like at uh, let's just say at uh, during the bat- battles between the Scots and the British the British fought as a unit the average British soldier was probably not much of a match for the average Scottish Highlander one on one but the British fought as a unit whereas the scots and i got ancestors on both sides of it tended to fight as a mob of individuals and just aiming for a general direction 
and they tended to lose more than they won for that reason. The same thing is why the why Rome ended up <clears throat> ruling most of the known world is because most of the people they were fighting, they fought as a bunch of individuals, while as the whereas Rome fought as a single organism of sorts. You, I, you understand where I'm, I'm going with that? I was going to say the same thing happened with Rome in, in Gaul mm -hmm. and the Roman portions of Germany mm -hmm. that they managed to yeah. to subject west of the Rhine. Yeah. They you know, I mean when you a soldiers versus warriors, I mean now one on one the warrior will usually eat the soldier's lunch, but history history shows very clearly that soldiers, as long as they're in a unit and trained to fight as a unit, have a distinct advantage over mobs of individuals. Well, Even well right, because they show humility. Okay, a good, another good example would be the uh, Battle of Rourke's Drift. When a handful of British soldiers held off four or 5,000 Zulus. Right. I mean, you've got one group is just semi, the group outside, the Zulus, were semi-organized. And I mean, they would all run in the same direction when their leader told them to. But the British soldiers were disciplined, fought as a unit under a, under a fixed command structure. <clears throat> and they won that battle hands down. Well, well, that's the laying aside one's own ego for the good of the the greater good of the entire unit, and and that that's very that that's the same Christian principle of of laying aside your own ego for the good of your kindred, your family, your brethren, and and acting as a unit, which is oh, yeah. the way we should do it, which is the way any organization has to do it in order to survive. Yep, but to do it, you also need competent leaders who are driven by service and not by ego. Right. I would agree. And which brings us back to the movement again, you know. I mean there are a few leaders there, but they're they I know back when I was heavily involved in it, uh if you wanted to find somebody who was not ego driven, you had to look pretty hard. I mean even if they were willing to serve and do everything else, it was just like me, 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 yeah. Uh, well, I'm not going to claim that it works out perfect in practice because it never yeah. does. But the League of the South does it, it advocate that philosophy in its position papers. Mm -hmm. That's a good start. That is, and uh, I know it's it's changed radically since I was involved in it. I mean, it's really changed dramatically in several ways. Well, well, right. But moving to the right has cut a lot of the chaff, also. Yeah, that's true. People that are probably better off in Sons of Confederate Veterans. Sons of yeah. Cuck-Federate Veterans, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that, Bill. <laughs> Heard the Sons of, and I'm like, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I gotta do it. <laughs> I'm a smart ass. I was born that way. Well, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I really think that the way the book describes that those um those factions among southern nationalists that the 
petty rivalries, the trivial differences, that, that does offer potential nationalists a lot to consider, while also offering an indictment of, of the movement itself. I, I think that's important. For those reasons, I would recommend this book to a young or potential Southern nationalist, as many of them come into the movement full of ideals and energies which are quickly worn down by both the infighting on the one side and a lack of opportunity to expend those energies on the other. In my opinion, many people come into nationalism or southern nationalism like balls of fire only to extinguish quickly because they are not prepared for what is more reasonably a long, hard road ahead. When when you join this cause, the cause, not the movement, the cause, you have to understand that it's going to be a long, hard fight, that you're not going to see immediate results. And like some of these men you depict in in your book, you'll never see results all your life. Like that old lawyer that beat the governor with the cane trying to take the flag down and ended up dead. He ended up trampled to death, but that was the most heroic thing he did all his life. Yeah. In his last moments. Yep. It's, it's hard to argue with. And, you know, you've, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a meme I saw here the other day where it's in an office and the guy's, this real jaded office worker is standing there holding a cup of coffee and he said, oh, you have ideals? You must be new here. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's the way it is. But you can't let yourself get jaded as some of your characters explain in the book if you're there for the cause and if you're committed to the cause you're not going to become jaded because you should believe in the cause that's my opinion you might be disappointed at times but you shouldn't have become jaded yeah i agree do you think that your book may have helped or influenced any changes among Southern nationalists since its publication? Or they only hardened their positions where they continue to differ? I mean, we see it hasn't fixed things, right? We still yeah, have all the it, same it, problems you right. explain. My thought would be that, you know, the information is there. If, I mean, I've led the horse to water. It's up to them what they do with it. If, um, a lot of people, I think, read it and liked it and saw every fault that was in there, in the, depicted in the movement, in the book, in everybody else except themselves. And we've all got our share. Every right. last one we, of us, you know. we all have our faults, I agree. But the, the way you depicted your traitor, Richard Jameson, the mm-hmm. one that actually had infiltrated through this through heading this one group had infiltrated the entire secret council of the leaders of these various southern nationalist organizations mm-hmm. he reminded me so much of the the some of the leaders in the sons of confederate veterans that i've seen and that i've actually mm-hmm. mocked it in articles online because i felt yeah. they deserved to be mocked but he reminded me so much of them. So even if you deny it, some of the associations, that they're just there. And I understand it's because, as you said, you're patterning your characters after certain types of behavior. And yeah. all those types of behavior, all those types exist among <laughs> leaders of Southern nationalist groups. Yeah. But 
I'm like, here's the here's the guy that's in the head of the SCV right here, this Richard Jameson. <laughs> and in the end, he hung, and he rightly hung. I shouldn't give away yeah. the end of your book, though. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> it's a good thing I haven't read the other three. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll put it this way. It gets... It carries it all the way through the war and into the aftermath. After it's all over. Well, well, I mean, I would hope that your work has dis inspired discussions in this area, and I, I think it should. But I, I think everybody that's a Southern nationalist that might read it might deny that any of it describes him. Possibly. That's very likely. I, I'm I mean, not it's, taking it's shots at anybody here, right? Everybody I, else's faults. <laughs> it's a lot harder to see your own. Right. I, I, that's just human nature. Yeah, yeah. Being Christians, we understand that we are not going to dismantle Babylon. We're just not. And I think True. that you, you believe that same thing, even if you're not Christian identity, you still... I mean, that's the scripture, right? It's pretty that plain. There, there will be no... Man cannot build a utopia on earth. The best he can do is, if he follows God closely enough, he can make things better. If he follows the will of God, the commandments of God, he can make things better. But he's not going to create a utopia on earth because utopia is perfect and man is not perfect. Well, well, that's not, the not as individuals or as a group. I, I agree, but we should seek the kingdom of heaven. And, oh, yeah. and that's how we should live our lives. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to, we ourselves are not going to install the kingdom of heaven. Even the apostles no. in Acts chapter 1 asked Christ if at that time they, he was going to restore the kingdom to the people of Israel. And he mm -hmm. said, no, that's, you're not supposed to even know when that's going to happen, right? Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it's, trying to think here. The, Best with, I mean, yeah, really, God will do what God will do when God decides to do it. And we're supposed to live for God, but God doesn't need our help. <laughs> he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our advice. Well, absolutely right. We're waiting <laughs> for the fall of Babylon that he said is going to fall, and we can't make it fall. I agree. Well, I think that Southern nationalist organizations, especially organizations like the League of the South, are important to us because we should be networking and forming communities so that we can survive the aftermath of that fall. Yeah. And so that we could be prepared for the aftermath of that fall. Because it is going, the system is going to crumble. There's no doubt. It's looking more and more like it every day. I mean, uh, more empty shelves. We're starting to get empty shelves. I predict within the next year or two, if that long, it's going to be kind of like you'll go in Walmart. It's going to look like one of those stores in the pictures you saw from the old Soviet Union where most of the shelf space is empty. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, my wife is listening to this program out in the back room with my son right now so that yeah. she could hear you. Otherwise, she would just hear me because I wear a headset, right? But yeah. <laughs> that being said, mm -hmm. I, I have had reports from people in other states about empty market shelves, especially mm -hmm. at Walmart and other big chains. But I haven't had any reports of that here yet. Oh, it's, it's here. I go to... Um put this way i was in here probably within the past okay let's just take the past two week period um two weeks ago i was at, over at sam's warehouse and we were over buying some um, buying some eggs and some other stuff over in the dairy aisle 
And I'm thinking, man, we got a lot of room here. Usually it's crammed up. And Kelly said, look what they're missing. I looked around. There wasn't a roll of toilet paper in the store. Not a single roll. Oh, wow. Well, when we came back, we had to come back a few days later. I mean, there's several of us here, so we, we end up buying food a lot, you know. But um, we came back a couple days late, a few days later, and there were two or three pallets of toilet paper, but that was it. It was maybe 20% of what they usually have, and they had the sign up, Limit One. <coughs> In Walmart... Uh, I've seen and I've seen several empty shelves at Sam's. In Walmart, there are big gaps in the shelves, and a, a lot of times you either can't find the particular type you want. Like one brand, like say um, uh, Marzetti, might make several different kinds of pickles, and you can't find this one particular kind of pickle, which is not, not surprising. But then you go and you're missing whole brands of stuff, and sometimes you're missing whole types of food that would normally be there. And then you go over in the meat section and the meat section tends to lack the variety of cuts they used to have. A lot of times there'll be a lot of empty spaces in there and the meat prices are just, especially beef is just off the chain. I mean, I, I look at it and I'm like, whoa, I mean, they're crazy high. So, I, I mean, it's it's the shortage is there. Um, I know when we try to, that's the only thing she's ever said that I agree, and I hate to, I hate to say this <laughs> in public, that I actually agree with uh, Kamala Harris on is when she said, you, if, you need to be buying your Christmas presents now. And you do a lot of stuff, even on the... Um, uh, online ordering, like Amazon and such, is out of stock. They don't know when they're getting it. They've got over 100 ships backed up off the Los Angeles port because they're fooling around with COVID and can't get them unloaded. I don't think and they want the, them unloaded. In the meantime, China shut down the biggest container port in the world, the one that, by the way, ships Chinese goods to the U.S. and North America. Uh, because they, you know, this is the Chinese said, well, there was a case of COVID, so we had to close the whole port. Now, I mean, you know, it's obvious what they're doing. They're kind of doing economic warfare against the U.S. Right. And they said it won't be open till after the American holidays. Right. I wouldn't doubt and it. So, and so, you know, every, there goes your your Black Friday is going to be in the red. I mean, I despise Black Friday. But know? I think I the Biden custom, administration but, is complicit with the Chinese in their economic warfare yeah, against the United I, States. I believe they are. I mean, we have the actual Manchurian candidate in there now. If we, if if they wanted the ships empty, they'd have the National Guard there emptying mm -hmm. the ships. Absolutely. Or they just put up a put up a sign and say, "Hey, we're paying twenty bucks an hour. Come down here and get these ships unloaded." You got people lined up. Perhaps and mostly Mexicans. Maybe yeah. Well, considering where they're at, maybe not. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, but they would. They would have National Guard down there do it. Do right, it. if they wanted to do it, they the would do it. jail down there doing it. Yes. You know, it, it could be, it, it's not rocket science. And so, that now this port here, they've, you don't see many of them waiting offshore. 
I mean, they're flying them in and out of there faster than normal over here in Panama City. But, you know, otherwise, out west, it's, it's just almost a complete shutdown. Just a trickle. I did see one container ship last Sunday. We were on the beach with a few mm -hmm. of our League of the South chapter members just hanging yeah. out at Laguna Beach. And I saw one container ship down towards Santa Rosa Beach that was just sitting out there in the water for the whole six hours that we were there. And I couldn't imagine where he, where he was going or where he wasn't going. Because there's but no port right there. They go to Panama City. They normally anchor out here like maybe a mile or, mile or two out off the jetties and wait there for their turn to go in. And so, you know, I can, I can see them from down here anytime I walk out on the beach. But, uh, you know, I don't know what he was doing unless maybe he was having some kind of a problem or something. Yeah, he was way down the end by the Santa Rosa Beach end. And I thought maybe he was holding off on heading to Pensacola or something, right? I, I don't know. I don't know. Because I think that's the next port. Is it Pensacola? Does, Destin doesn't have one, does it? No. Okay, so it would be Pensacola then. So Maybe it, it sat there for, we were there a good five, six hours. Know. And that ship sat there the whole time, and I never saw that before in the Gulf. Around I've here. seen them wait, wait out here like early in the year. I've seen them out there, and then last year, I've seen them out there for as long as three days. But wow. I've never seen more than two out there. And okay. normally, I've never seen two out there for more than a day. It's like you might see two one day, next day you'll see one, and then the next day that one will be in there being unloaded or loaded or whatever they're doing. Well, you live a lot closer to the port than we do. Yeah, I mean, I have any time I go to town, I have to uh, drive over the Hathaway Bridge. And so I pr I'm probably I, literally looking down on the port and on the ships being unloaded at least once every two days. Okay. So, yeah, I kind of, I kind of notice things. <laughs> now, I might get to town once a week, maybe. Yeah. Well, you're, out, you're out, out in the middle of nowhere. In the I swamp. Mean, just, you know. In the swamp where there aren't any ships, there are just gators. They yeah. don't stick around that long, though. Well, it it's, pink, it seems to me that they're purposely <laughs> trying to tank the economy. They really are. And and shut down all the mom and pop businesses that they possibly can and usher in a new thrust towards world communism. Exactly. I mean, that's they get along with the Chinese because they're the Chinese fellow travelers in communism. Yes. I, I mean, that's what the left is. It is communist. Right. There's no... Yeah, you know, no other way to put it. I mean, it, it is a communist, and we're seeing the same things now in America, and we have for the past year or so, that the Bolsheviks did when they were taking over Russia. It's just a lot slower. Mm -hmm, it is. <clears throat> and, of course, the average American is a lot better armed than the average Russian, which may have something to do with it. You know, because you can... You know, you can push people so far. Well, it's like the Maoist philosophy. Mao said, probe with bayonets if you encounter steel, withdraw. If you encounter mush, push on. And that's what they're doing. We're being probed. And they're, they're pushing where they can without actually sparking the, the, say, the third revolution.
Well, well right, and, and that's where I was going <laughs> before our digression. In, in the appendix to your book, you warned that this is not a manual, right? And you discourage people from doing these things, quote-unquote, at home, or at least a lot of those things. And, and, of course, that's something with which I find it hard to disagree, at least for many of us. But it does yeah. seem to represent a good outline suggesting certain things which ultimately must be done if we as Southerners are going to survive this wrath to come. Well, I, I, best way I can put this due to the legalities of the thing is if you, I'm not responsible for what you do at home. I told you not to, so if you do it. Well, right. I don't blame you for the disclaimer. I, I mean, I think it was well-placed. It had to be said, but... I think a lot of what what's outlined in your book, we better be doing, to be honest. Not necessarily driving around on four-wheelers trying to blow things up, but the, the organization, the preparation, the, the networking, we need to be doing those things. Yeah, I mean, you have to. I, I studied when I was writing the book. I had a load of books open in front of me. I was on the Internet all the time researching revolutions of all sorts, both the ones that worked and the ones that failed. And without regard to uh, political affiliation of the revolutionaries, everything I was considering is what tactics worked, what tactics didn't, you know, what strategy worked. I mean, I've read, um, obviously I've read most of the books or a lot of the books on the war between the states. I studied stuff on the American Revolution. I also studied stuff by the communists like Che Guevara and Mao and to what they did, how they how they came to victory, and, and things the Viet Cong did, and then things that other people of various, um, you know, revolutionary demeanors did, and what, what worked and what didn't. And it's um, the average, I mean, revolutions have the odds against them to start with. It's like they said in the book, um, and I cannot think of the name of it. It's a book on the uh, the Irish Revolution or the Troubles, as they say. Um, it said that the the normal end for a revolutionary is either in a cell or against a wall somewhere, and that that is historically speaking the average end. If you if you can if you win like the U.S. did in 1776, you have beaten the odds historically. Right. So the odds are against you to start with. Absolutely. And uh, you don't have room for to make a lot of mistakes. No, but if you're going to be successful, you're also going to be selfless. You have to be, yes. And, it's, it's and of cause, course, there will the be heroes. Be bigger than you. There will be heroes that, that emerge mm -hmm. later on down the road, but you can't be upset if you're not going to be one of them. And if you're not selfless, you're definitely no. not going no, to be. You... If you're not selfless, you're definitely not going to be one of them. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, okay, a good example. The thing is, if, if you're meant to be a hero, you'll be one. It's like General Lee said, you know, do your duty. He said, the most sublime word in the English language is duty. You cannot do more, and you should always endeavor to never to do less. And you look at his attitude toward, compared to uh, a glory hunter 
who wanted to be a hero, uh, like General George Armstrong Custer. <laughs> right, that's exactly. Example. That's a great uh, that that's a great comparison. Yeah, you know, you end up with your scalp hanging from somebody's lodge pole. <laughs> and so, and uh, I believe that. I mean, it's. Stonewall Jackson was a selfless man who didn't survive the war, but Nathan Bedford Forrest was a selfless man who did. Lee himself yep. was a selfless Forrest, man. Uh, absolutely. Forrest was a, um, in fact, Forrest, the company he raised, paid for and outfitted, he enlisted in as a private to start with. Right. He had no military training, so he thought, I'm not qualified to lead. And they insisted he become a lieutenant. And by the time his first battle or two was over, the governor made him a lieutenant colonel. <laughs> well, well, that was skill. I, I mean, if you're going to become a hero in a cause, you're going to do it on merit and not because you think you should be a hero. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Yeah, you know, you have a certain until you have a certain mentality, okay. Like in the, in the war, and actually on both sides, the war between the states, you had the each side had its own little West Point clique, and anybody who didn't who wasn't in West Point, no, no, they 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 were somehow of a lesser being than people who were, and it it showed a lot of times in their promotions. And then their retentions of officers who were not not really qualified to lead. I believe that that that's that that's very credible. There's a lot of examples of that today. I mean, I would have to sit and think them out. But oh, yeah. yes, the the clicks. I, I had a friend that was um. Well, years ago, it was a Paris Island Marine. My son was a Paris Island Marine. And they despised the San Diego Marines. Mm -hmm. The San Diego Marines weren't as good as the Paris Island yep. Marines. They weren't real Marines. They called them Hollywood Marines. So, so <laughs> I did, I did see that in my life, even though I'd never been in a service. So, so I, I mean, but we, and that whole same phenomenon, I'm sure, manifests itself in in a lot of things we do, and we may not even notice it. Or a lot of areas it where does. we are. I mean, it'll be in it, it'll be in every area in your life, really. I mean, and people around you. You don't have to let it affect you particularly, but it affects people around you, and it's best to recognize it and just you know understand that it is it is there. And if you're ever in a leader leadership position, then you need to watch for that not only in the people around you and under you, but also in yourself. Because it's really easy to do. I mean, to fall into this thing. Well, he and I went to did this together. We went to the same school, or we belong to the same organization, and therefore he's he'll be the better leader than the guy who belonged to some rival organization. But that's not necessarily true. No, it's not true at all. And and you could think that you're you're, you're the the start a program in, in your own organization and go into another organization and quickly find out that you're not really qualified at all, <laughs> that you're lacking serious qualifications. No, Anybody could be the king in his own little mind or his own little world. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody's a legend in their own mind. <laughs> you just gotta try not to let that spill out into what you do. Well, well, this word, this word, nation, nationalism. This word, nation, comes from the Latin term "natio." The Greek was hard at in, in ancient Latin, apparently, and mm-hmm. it it is related to words that mean birth and race. Natio means to be born. It comes from the the same word nativitas comes from natio. And Mm -hmm. nativitas is nativity, which is your birth. If we don't have a common origin in our birth, we're not all the same nation. We really can't be nationalists together. That's artificial. That's a construct of man and not of God. In, in the construct of God and the natural world, natural is another word that's related to natio or, or to birth. In, in the natural world, yeah. your nation are the people of your same race, your same origin. And if you're going to be a nationalist, the, 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 the term should imply that you care about people of your same race and origin. And and if you do Absolutely. that, then that requires being selfless. And, yep. and that's the only way that any nationalist movement is going to advance. I mean, I hope it, I hope it, that idea kicks in because, you know, I mean, you see it more among the lower ranks than you see it among the high ranks. You know, they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But you see people in the upper ranks who are perfectly willing to let somebody in the lower ranks become a martyr of sorts for the cause, but they themselves, the first time they're faced with an indictment, will take and roll over. Oh, yeah, here, I'll give you everything. You know? Well, right. And, Not in yeah, you know, those concepts. Much as in you know, other, other groups. Those concepts. You know what I mean. Those concepts are very well reflected in your book, even though they are not explicit. The characters, the the, the successful heroes, the characters are very selfless individuals. Um, In in when the leaders of these various organizations were rounded up, they all spilled. The ones that were captured all spilled their guts to the federals. To, to the feds, mm-hmm. but the woman didn't. <laughs> yep. The woman, Samantha, yeah, well, that, that was a, a later um, feature of your book where it was used, that fact was used against one of those leaders who spilled his guts to the feds like a bitch. Mm-hmm. And it was mentioned that the woman didn't, yeah, but much. he did. So he was no longer qualified to be a leader. He he wanted to yeah, lead. I mean, he was just he became somebody useful in that position, and that was it. Right. He, yeah, wasn't, he wasn't qualified, qualified to lead to... the confederation of groups for that reason. Yeah, he's. Uh, you know, the thing is, when you mentioned, I didn't didn't expressly say it. Uh, there is a rule in writing that is true, as if you're writing for people who can who can actually think critically. If you're writing junk fiction, that's that's something else. But if you're writing for people who can actually think, there is a fixed rule in writing that whenever possible, show rather than tell. Right. And it's kind of bleeds over into life where actions speak louder than words. Absolutely. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Show me what you're going to do. 
Well, well, I'm just, I'm just trying to make a statement that you didn't have to say it explicitly, but yeah. I did notice those values which we, you just did explicitly profess that those values are actually built into your characters, which I thought was that good. was the plan. I write, you know, even when I write, whether I write uh, nationalist fiction like the uh, Third Revolution or the Barnacles of Aegir, they're explicitly nationalist. Or I write others that while they're not explicitly nationalist, they are. All my fiction has, primarily it has white heroes and heroines with traditional white values. It's written by a white author for a white audience. And I don't choose my heroes off one list and the villains off the other one. I mean, if you look at, at any modern fiction almost, the heroes or heroines have to be taken off, stuff you buy at Walmart, has to be taken off list A, and your villains have to be taken off list B. And that's just the way it is. And uh, I don't do cookie-cutter characters and stuff like that. And my only list is that I want the people who are the books about the characters who are in the book to be what I think are the ideals for my own people. And besides, it would do me no good to try to write about somebody who wasn't part of my own people. Like I can't, I couldn't sit down and write the, um, okay. Say like something from a, an Oriental perspective or an African perspective. I have no idea. They're, they're outside my realm of both experience and instinct. And well, so well, of I course, write, just like I wouldn't try to write anything about, about the military. I've never been in the military. Do what, though? Just like I wouldn't try to write anything about the military. I've never been in the military. But evidently, that gentleman that first showed yeah. you his manuscript wasn't in the military either and, and didn't want to admit that. That's a safe bet. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, he came up with some outrageous stuff. And the thing is, I was in for a short period of time until I busted a knee. And then I was given the choice of, yeah, we can, well, put it this way. I was at Fort Dix, New Jersey in the dead of winter. Fell on frozen ground, screwed up my meniscus cartilage, and I was given the choice. Yeah, you can stay here, or we, you can either go home, or you can stay here. We'll operate on you, give you rehab, and you can go through basic training all over again. I'm looking outside, and it's snowing. The temperature is down in the teens, and I'm like, <laughs> pack my bags. <laughs> West Virginia yeah, isn't much it, warmer. Well, it it's not, but it the weather varies a little bit more. Uh, West Virginia, Jeff Foxworthy was right. It's the only place where shorts and a parka are considered proper attire. That's funny. Because it may be in the teens in the morning, and it may be in the high 60s by afternoon. <laughs> That's funny. And now, since I moved down here, if the temperature hits in the fifties, I'm I'm freezing to death. <laughs> but, 
Yeah, I'm the same way. And I used to scoff at people that wore coats when it was in the 40s. But now I need a coat when it's in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Well, I saw the uh, police officers over here on the Hathaway Bridge pulling people over. It was 50 degrees and they're wearing toboggans. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what's going on here? Well, by the next winter, it's 50 degrees and guess who's wearing one? Right. It's it's incredible. I scoffed at people for, for my first four years here, but by my fifth year, it, it started getting cold in the wintertime. Oh, yeah. Or I started feeling the cold in the wintertime. That, that could have. I don't want to admit that, really. Well, I came down <laughs> that, here from upstate New York. Think about old age. I came down here from the mountains in upstate New York, and, and well, okay. I had a couple of years stop in Tennessee, but... but Mm-hmm. I, I scoffed at people that would wear a coat. I, the only time I wore a coat is I've, I was going to be outside for more than an hour, and it was under 30. Mm-hmm. Then I wore a coat. But if I was outside working and, and shoveling snow and things like that, I'd never wear a coat because I'd build up heat and just retain it. it it's You come yeah. down here, and you lose all your acclimation to the cold in just a couple of years. It is a huge difference, but I would have thought that West Virginia was colder than that. I, I really would have. It depends I, on, on where you're at. See, I'm not from the mountains as such. I'm from the foothills along the Ohio border. In fact, I, everywhere I've lived, I could see the river from the house. And wow. um, I mean, I could either see the river or see Ohio, one of the two. And so I've, I don't think I've ever lived more than, more than a mile back from the river. And it was just, so you had, you had a combination of, you didn't quite have the brutal freezing cold of the mountains, not quite, but you also had some of the winds from the Midwest and you had a little bit of a lake effect. So you kind of had it all. And, um, I mean, it was like saying the mountains that may drop below zero and stay that way for days where I was at, it would drop below zero two or three times a winter, just enough to freeze up all the pipes. And um, that was, you know, usually we didn't have really deep snowfalls, but every three or four years, yeah, we would, we'd be immobilized. But it, it was just, the weather was all over the place. If you had a choice to get on New Jersey, on I, I don't blame you one minute for taking it. I don't. <laughs> for other reasons, but that's okay. <laughs> yep. Well, I don't know if that, if, if there's anything else you you really want to touch on. I, I mean, your book was dedicated to a young man that lost his life to two, I'm going to call them niggers, because that's what they were, who, who murdered him that's simply are, for yeah. flying a Confederate flag. <laughs> Simply for flying a Confederate flag. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go They they murdered him for flying a Confederate flag. And the thing is, they chased him down and shot him in front of his girlfriend because he had one on his car. And the, the press said that, well, they knew him from school, but they didn't realize it was him. They thought it was a racist. And so like that justified. Yeah, right. I, I mean, there's a so, case you know. that there's a case right now where some feral ape in a high school shot a teacher 
and a fellow student that he happened to be fighting with, and the teacher tried to break up the altercation, and he's out on bail right now. They let him right out on bail. Yep. You know how old he was? 17, I think, he or 18. 18. Shot, according to the paper today, or the uh, thing today, the news today, he's 18, and the quote-unquote bully he shot was 15. Yes, I heard that. I heard that as well. And, and I saw the, I saw the uh, video of the fight, and it looked like to me he was the one up on top just hammering on the guy and screaming, nigga, nigga, nigga at him, you know, like that. And um, it, it looked to me from the video like he was the aggressor. I mean, he was, hell, he looked like he's about a foot taller than the other kid. <laughs> I'm sure. But, um, and a $75,000 bond ain't much of a bond for murder. Not much at all. No, it's you know ridiculous. It, for it's, shoot, going at, basically for a school shooting. It's clearly right in our faces. This inversion of reality that we, we that yeah, your it's, book it's, describes, it's right in our faces. We're, we're caught in clown world. It's, it's like being in a Monty Python skit caught on a loop while doing some really bad acid. <laughs> right. You know, well, you're just looking around like, what's happening? <laughs> it is clown world. I, I agree. Springfield, Tennessee. That that's not an area where I would expect something to this something like this to happen. That that's rather rural in small town Tennessee. It it's not mm-hmm. Memphis or, or even. I, I might expect. I thought the I thought he was from I thought he was from Texas. No, I'm talking about Robert Westerman. Maybe I misread it. Michael Michael Westerman. I'm sorry. The the feral ape oh, that is yeah. out on yeah. bail, that's in Texas. But I looked, I had to look Fort, because yeah. I never heard of Springfield, Tennessee, even though I lived there for quite a few years, for a couple of years of my life, and, and we've been yeah. all through it. I never heard of Springfield, or I never remembered it, that this is 50, 60 miles above Nashville. It's up above Nashville. It's a rural area. It's not something mm-hmm. where I would expect something like this to happen, where, where this white kid got shot by these two niggers in 1995. So that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, I believe there were four of them actually involved in chasing him down and shooting him. If I'm, if I recall, now it's been a long time, but yeah, I wouldn't, you know, not would really surprise me, but I'd remember where he put his car keys, but you know. in, in my notes to this program, when I publish it, I'll have the link and people could go read about it if they want. Yeah. Along with your advertisement for the book and, and my notes and some of the questions that we discussed and that. things Thank like you. that. Yeah. Thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. It has been. It's been fun. And maybe we'll do it again sometime. Wonderful. Definitely. And and maybe I'll see you at that place I met you last week sometime, too. Sometime soon. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Praise Christ. Okay. We'll see you later. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening, everybody. Praise Yahweh. Good night.